Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Rob Reads to You, where we are continuing on with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, last time we listened, uh, we spent the day with Paul Irving and Davy and Gilbert, the you know the various male figures in in Anne's life right now, and you know not a lot happened. Um, just kind of character stuff, and you know that unimportant character stuff. Uh, then. Uh, and finally got to host the dinner party for Charlotte Mor or Mrs. Charlotte Morgan, although obviously it didn't go the way that she had intended, but it turned out all right anyway. And now we'll continue on. So chapter 21, Sweet Miss Lavender. School opened and Anne returned to her work with fewer theories, but considerably more experience. She had several new pupils, six- and seven-year-olds, just venturing, round-eyed, into a world of wonder. Among them were Davy and Dora. Davy sat with Milty Bolter, who had been going to school for a year, and was therefore quite a man of the world. Dora had made a compact at Sunday school the previous Sunday to sit with Lily Sloane, but Lily Sloane not coming the first day, she was temporarily assigned to Mirabel Cotton who was ten years old and therefore, in Dora's eyes, one of the big girls. I think school is great fun, Davy told Marilla when he got home that night. You said I'd find it hard to sit still, and I did. You mostly do tell the truth, I notice. But you can wriggle your legs about under the desk, and that helps a lot. It's splendid to have so many boys to play with. I sit with Milty Bolter, and he's fine. He's longer than I am, but I'm wider. It's nicer to sit in the back seats, but you can't sit there till your legs grow long enough to touch the floor. Milty drawed a picture of Anne on his slate, and it was awful ugly, and I told him if he made pictures of Anne like that, I'd lick him at recess. I thought first I'd draw one of him and put horns and a tail on it, but I was afraid it would hurt his feelings, and Anne says you should never hurt anyone's feelings. It seems it's dreadful to have your feelings hurt. It's better to knock a boy down than hurt his feelings if you must do something. Milty said he wasn't scared of me, but he'd just as soon call it somebody else to oblige me, so he rubbed out Anne's name and printed Barbara Shaw's under it. Milty doesn't like Barbara because she calls him a sweet little boy, and once she patted him on his head. Dora said primly that she liked school, but she was very quiet, even for her. And when at twilight Marilla bade her go upstairs to bed, she hesitated and began to cry. I'm... I'm frightened, she sobbed. I don't want to go upstairs alone in the dark. What notion have you got into your head now? demanded Marilla. I'm sure you've gone to bed alone all summer and never been frightened before. Dora still continued to cry, so Anne picked her up, cuddled her sympathetically, and whispered, Tell Anne all about it, sweetheart. What are you frightened of? Of... of Mirabel Cotton's uncle, sobbed Dora. Mirabel Cotton told me all about her family today in school. Nearly everybody in her family has died, all her grandfathers and grandmothers and ever so many uncles and aunts. They have a habit of dying, Mirabel says. Mirabel's awful proud of having so many dead relations, and she told me what they all died of and what they said and how they looked in their coffins. And Mirabel says one of her uncles was seen walking around the house after he was buried. Her mother saw him. I don't mind the rest so much, but I can't help thinking about that uncle. Anne went upstairs with Dora and sat by her until she fell asleep. 
The next day, Mirabelle Cotton was kept in at recess and, gently but firmly, given to understand that when you were so unfortunate as to possess an uncle who persisted in walking about houses after he had been decently interred, it was not in good taste to talk about that eccentric gentleman to your deskmate of tender years. Mirabelle thought this very harsh. The Cottons had not much to boast of. How was she to keep up her prestige among her schoolmates if she were forbidden to make capital out of the family ghost? September slipped by into a golden-crimson graciousness of October. One Friday evening, Diana came over. I had a letter from Ella Kimball today, Anne, and she wants us to go over to tea tomorrow afternoon to meet her cousin, Irene Trent, from town. But we can't get one of our horses to go, for they'll all be in use tomorrow, and your pony is lame. So I suppose we can't go. Why can't we walk? suggested Anne. If we go straight back through the woods, we'll strike the West Grafton Road, not far from the Kimball place. I was through that way last winter, and I know the road. It's no more than four miles, and we won't have to walk home, for Oliver Kimball will be sure to drive us. He'll be only too glad of the excuse, for he goes to see Carrie Sloane, and they say his father will hardly ever let him have a horse. It was accordingly arranged that they should walk, and the following afternoon they set out, going by way of Lover's Lane to the back of the Cuthbert Farm, where they found a road leading into the heart of acres of glimmering beech and maple woods, which were all in a wondrous glow of flame and gold, lying in a great purple stillness and peace. It's as if the year were kneeling to pray in a vast cathedral full of mellow-stained light, isn't it? said Anne dreamily. It doesn't seem right to hurry through it, does it? It seems irreverent, like running in a church. We must hurry, though, said Diana, glancing at her watch. We've left ourselves little enough time as it is. Well, I'll walk fast, but don't ask me to talk, said Anne, quickening her pace. I just want to drink the day's loveliness in. I feel as if she were holding it out to my lips like a cup of airy wine, and I'll take a sip at every step. Perhaps it was because she was so absorbed in drinking it in that Anne took the left turning when they came to a fork in the road. She should have taken the right, but ever afterward she counted it the most fortunate mistake of her life. They came out finally to a lonely, grassy road with nothing in sight along it but ranks of spruce saplings. "'Why, where are we?' exclaimed Diana in bewilderment. "'This isn't the West Grafton Road.' "'No, it's the baseline road in Middle Grafton,' said Anne rather shamefacedly. "'I must have taken the wrong turning at the fork. "'I don't know where we are exactly, but we must be all of three miles from Kimball's still. "'Then we can't get there by five, for it's half-past four now,' said Diana, with a despairing look at her watch. "'We'll arrive after they've had their tea, and they'll have all the bother of getting ours over again.' "'We'd better turn back and go home,' suggested Anne humbly. But Diana, after consideration, vetoed this. "'No. We may as well go and spend the evening, since we have come this far.' A few yards further on, the girls came to a place where the road forked again. "'Which of these do we take?' asked Diana dubiously. Anne shook her head. "'I don't know, and we can't afford to make any more mistakes. Here is a gate in a lane leading right into the wood.' There must be a house at the other side. Let us go down and inquire. What a romantic old lane this is, said Diana as they walked along its twists and turns. It ran under patriarchal old firs whose branches met above, creating a perpetual gloom in which nothing except moss could grow. 
On either hand were brown wood floors, crossed here and there by fallen lances of sunlight. All was very still and remote, as if the world and the cares of the world were far away. I feel as if we were walking through an enchanted forest, said Anne in a hushed tone. Do you suppose we'll ever find our way back to the real world again, Diana? We shall presently come to a palace with a spellbound princess in it, I think. Around the next turn, they came in sight, not indeed of a palace, but of a little house, almost as surprising as a palace would have been in this province of conventional wooden farmhouses, all as much alike in general characteristics as if they had grown from the same seed. Anne stopped short in rapture, and Diana exclaimed, Oh, I know where we are now. That is the little stone house where Miss Lavender Lewis lives. Echo Lodge, she calls it, I think. I've often heard of it, but I've never seen it before. Isn't it a romantic spot? It's the sweetest, prettiest place I ever saw or imagined, said Anne delightedly. It looks like a bit out of a storybook or a dream. The house was a low-eaved structure built of undressed blocks of red island sandstone, with a little peaked roof out of which peered two dormer windows, with quaint wooden hoods over them, and two great chimneys. The whole house was covered with a luxuriant growth of ivy, finding easy foothold on the rough stonework, and turned by autumn frosts to most beautiful bronze and wine-red tints. Before the house was an oblong garden, into which the lane gate which the girls were standing opened. The house bounded it on one side. On the three others it was enclosed by an old stone dike, so overgrown with moss and grass and ferns that it looked like a high green bank. On the right and left the tall dark spruces spread their palm-like branches over it. But below it was a little meadow, green with clover aftermath, sloping down to the blue loop of the Grafton River. No other house or clearing was in sight, nothing but hills and valleys covered with feathery young firs. I wonder what sort of a person Miss Lewis is, speculated Diana as they opened the gate into the garden. They say she is very peculiar. She'll be interesting then, said Anne decidedly. Peculiar people are always that at least, whatever else they are or are not. Didn't I tell you we would come to an enchanted palace? I knew the elves hadn't woven magic over that lane for nothing. But Miss Lavender Lewis is hardly a spellbound princess, laughed Diana. She's an old maid. She's forty-five and quite gray, I've heard. Oh, that's only part of the spell, asserted Anne confidently. At heart, she's young and beautiful still. And if we only knew how to unloose the spell, she would step forth radiant and fair again. But we don't know how. It's always and only the prince who knows that. And Miss Lavender's prince hasn't come yet. Perhaps some fatal mischance has befallen him, although that's against the law of all fairy tales. I'm afraid he came long ago and went away again, said Diana. They say she used to be engaged to Stephen Irving, Paul's father, when they were young, but they quarreled and parted. Hush, warned Anne, the door is open. The girls paused on the porch under the tendrils of ivy and knocked at the open door. There was a patter of steps inside, and a rather odd little personage presented herself. A girl of about fourteen, with a freckled face, a snub nose, a mouth so wide that it really seemed as if it stretched from ear to ear, and two long braids of fair hair tied with two enormous bows of blue ribbon. "'Is Miss Lewis at home?' asked Diana. "'Yes, ma'am,' 
Come in, ma'am. This way, ma'am. And sit down, ma'am. I'll tell Miss Lavender you are here, ma'am. She's upstairs, ma'am. With this, the small handmaiden whisked out of sight, and the girls, left alone, looked about them with delighted eyes. The interior of this wonderful little house was quite as interesting as its, as its exterior. The room had a low ceiling and two square, small-paned windows, curtained with muslin frills. All the furnishings were old-fashioned, but so well and daintily kept that the effect was delicious. But it must be candidly admitted that the most attractive feature to two healthy girls who had just tramped four miles through autumn air was a table, set out with pale blue china and laden with delicacies, while little golden-hued ferns scattered over the cloth gave it what Anne would have termed a festal air. "'Miss Lavender must be expecting company to tea,' she whispered. "'There are six places set. But what a funny little girl she has. She looked like a messenger from Pixieland.' I suppose she could have told us the road, but I was curious to see Miss Lavender. Shh, 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 she's coming. And with that, Miss Lavender Lewis was standing in the doorway. The girls were so surprised that they forgot good manners and simply stared. They had unconsciously been expecting to see the usual type of elderly spinster as known to their experience, a rather angular personage with prim gray hair and spectacles. Nothing more unlike Miss Lavender could possibly be imagined. She was a little lady with snow-white hair beautifully wavy and thick, and carefully arranged in becoming puffs and coils. Beneath it was an almost girlish face, pink-cheeked and sweet-lipped, with big, soft brown eyes and dimples, actually dimples. She wore a very dainty gown of cream muslin with pale-hued roses on it, a gown which would have seemed ridiculously juvenile on most women of her age, but which suited Miss Lavender so perfectly that you never thought about it at all. Charlotte the Fourth says that you wish to see me, she said in a voice that matched her appearance. We wanted to ask the right road to West Grafton, said Diana. We are invited to tea at Mr. Kimball's, but we took the wrong path coming through the woods and came out to the baseline instead of the West Grafton Road. Do we take the right or left turning at your gate? The left, said Miss Lavender, with a hesitating glance at her tea table. Then she exclaimed, as if in a sudden little burst of resolution, But, oh, won't you stay and have tea with me? Please do. Mr. Kimball's will have tea over before you get there, and Charlotte the Fourth and I will be so glad to have you. Diana looked mute inquiry at Anne. We'd like to stay said Anne promptly, for she had made up her mind that she wanted to know more of this surprising Miss Lavender. If it won't inconvenience you. But you are expecting other guests, aren't you? Miss Lavender looked at her tea table again and blushed. I know you'll think me dreadfully foolish, she said. I am foolish, and I'm ashamed of it when I'm found out, but never unless I am found out. I'm not expecting anybody. I was just pretending I was. You see, I was so lonely. I love company, that is the right kind of company, but so few people ever come here because it is so far out of the way. Charlotte the Fourth was lonely too, so I just pretended I was going to have a tea party. I cooked for it, and decorated the table for it, and set it with my mother's wedding china, and I dressed up for it. Diana secretly thought Miss Lavender quite as peculiar as reported pictured her. The idea of a woman of forty-five playing and having a tea party just as if she were a little girl. 
But Anne of the Shining Eyes exclaimed joyfully, Oh, do you imagine things too? That too revealed a kindred spirit to Miss Lavender. Yes, I do, she confessed boldly. Of course it's silly in anybody as old as I am. But what is the use of being an independent old maid if you can't be silly when you want to, and when it doesn't hurt anybody? A person must have some compensations. I don't believe I could live at times if I didn't pretend things. It's not all, I'm not often caught at it, though, and Charlotta the Fourth never tells. But I'm glad to be caught today, for you have really come, and I have tea all ready for you. Will you go up to the spare room and take off your hats? It's the white door at the head of the stairs. I must run out to the kitchen and see that Charlotta the Fourth isn't letting the tea boil. Charlotta the Fourth is a very good girl, but she will let the tea boil. Miss Lavender tripped off to the kitchen on hospitable thoughts intent, and the girls found their way up to the spare room, an apartment as white as its door, lighted by the ivy-hung dormer window, and looking, as Anne said, like the place where happy dreams grew. "'This is quite an adventure, isn't it?' said Diana. "'And isn't Miss Lavender sweet if she is a little odd? She doesn't look a bit like an old maid. She looks just as music sounds, I think,' answered Anne." When they went down, Miss Lavender was carrying in the teapot, and behind her, looking vastly pleased, was Charlotta the Fourth, with a plate of hot biscuits. "'Now you must tell me your names,' said Miss Lavender. "'I'm so glad you are young girls. I love young girls. It's so easy to pretend I'm a girl myself when I'm with them. I do hate,' with a little grimace, "'to believe I'm old. Now, who are you, just for convenience's sake? Diana Barry? And Anne Shirley?' "'May I pretend that I've known you for a hundred years "'and call you Anne and Diana right away?' "'You may,' the girls said both together. "'Then just let's sit comfortably down and eat everything,' "'said Miss Lavender happily. "'Charlotta, you sit at the foot and help the chicken. "'It is so fortunate that I made the sponge cake and doughnuts. "'Of course it was foolish to do it for imaginary guests. "'I know Charlotta the Fourth thought so, didn't you, Charlotta? "'But you see how well it has turned out.' Of course they wouldn't they wouldn't have been wasted, for Charlotta the Fourth and I could have eaten them through time. But sponge cake is not a thing that improves with time. That was a merry and memorable meal, and when it was over they all went out to the garden, lying in the glamour of sunset. I do think you have the loveliest place here, said Diana, looking around her admiringly. Why do you call it Echo Lodge? asked Anne. Charlotta, said Miss Lavender. Go into the house and bring out the little tin horn that is hanging over the clock shelf. Charlotta the Fourth skipped off and returned with the horn. Blow it, Charlotta, commanded Miss Lavender. Charlotta accordingly blew, a rather raucous, strident blast. There was a moment's stillness, and then from the woods over the river came a multitude of fairy echoes, sweet, elusive, silvery, as if all the horns of Elfland were blowing against the sunset. Anne and Diana exclaimed in delight. Now, Charlotta, laugh loudly. Charlotta, who would probably have obeyed if Miss Lavender had told her to stand on her head, climbed upon the stone bench and laughed loud and heartily. Back came the echoes, as if a host of pixie people were mimicking her laughter in the purple woodlands and along the fur-fringed points. People always admire my echoes very much, said Miss Lavender, as if the echoes were her personal property. I love them myself. They are very good company, with a little pretending. 
On calm evenings, Charlotta the Fourth and I often sit out here and amuse ourselves with them. Charlotta, take back the horn and hang it carefully in its place. Why do you call her Charlotta the Fourth? asked Diana, who was bursting with curiosity on this point. Just to keep her from getting mixed up with the other Charlottas in my thoughts, said Miss Lavender seriously. They all look so much alike, there's no telling them apart. Her name isn't really Charlotta at all. It is... Let me see, what is it? I think it's Leonora. Yes, it is Leonora. You see, it is this way. When Mother died ten years ago, I couldn't stay here alone, and I couldn't afford to pay the wages of a grown-up girl. So I got little Charlotta Bowman to come and stay with me for board and clothes. Her name really was Charlotta. She was Charlotta the First. She was just thirteen. She stayed with me till she was sixteen, and then she went away to Boston, because she could do better there. Her sister came to stay with me then. Her name was Julietta. Mrs. Bowman had a weakness for fancy names, I think. But she looked so like Charlotta that I kept calling her that all the time, and she didn't mind. So I just gave up trying to remember her right name. She was Charlotta the Second, and when she went away, uh, Evelina came, and she was Charlotta the Third. Now I have Charlotta the Fourth, but when she is sixteen, she's fourteen now, she will want to go to Boston too, and what I shall do then I really do not know. Charlotta the Fourth is the last of the Bowman girls, and the best. The other Charlottas always let me see that they thought it silly of me to pretend things, but Charlotta the Fourth never does, no matter what she may really think. I don't care what people think about me if they don't let me see it. Well, said Diana, looking regretfully at the setting sun, I suppose we must go if we want to get to Mr. Kimball's before dark. We've had a lovely time, Miss Lewis. Won't you come again and see me? pleaded Miss Lavender. Tall Anne put her arm about the little lady. Indeed we shall, she promised. Now that we have discovered you, we'll wear out our welcome coming to see you. Yes, we must go. We must tear ourselves away, as Paul Irving says every time he comes to Green Gables. Paul Irving? There was a subtle change in Miss Lavender's voice. Who is he? I didn't think there was anybody of that name in Avonlea. Anne felt vexed at her own heedlessness. She had forgotten about Miss Lavender's old romance when Paul's name slipped out. He is a little pupil of mine, she explained slowly. He came from Boston last year to live with his grandmother, Mrs. Irving of the Shore Road. Is he Stephen Irving's son? Miss Lavender asked, bending over her namesake border so that her face was hidden. Yes. I'm going to give you girls a bunch of lavender apiece, said Miss Lavender brightly, as if she had not heard the answer to her question. It's very sweet, don't you think? Mother always loved it. She planted these borders long ago. Father named me Lavender because he was so fond of it. The very first time he saw Mother was when he visited her home in East Grafton with her brother. He fell in love with her at first sight, and they put him in the spare room bed to sleep, and the sheets were scented with lavender, and he lay awake all night and thought of her. He always loved the scent of lavender after that, and that was why he gave me the name. Don't forget to come back soon, girls, dear. We'll be looking for you, Charlotta the Fourth and I. She opened the gate under the firs for them to pass through. She looked suddenly old and tired. The glow and radiance had faded from her face. Her parting smile was as sweet with ineradicable youth as ever, 
but when the girls looked back from the first curve in the lane, they saw her sitting on the old stone bench under the silver poplar in the middle of the garden with her head leaning wearily on her hand. She does look lonely, said Diana softly. We must come often to see her. I think her parents gave her the only right and fitting name that could possibly be given her, said Anne. If they had been so blind as to name her Elizabeth or Nellie or Muriel, she must have been called Lavender just the same, I think. It's so suggestive of sweetness and old-fashioned graces and silk attire. Now my name just smacks of bread and butter, patchwork and chores. Oh, I don't think so, said Diana. Anne seems to me real stately and like a queen. But I'd like Karen Hopbuck if it happened to be your name. I think people make their names nice or ugly just by what they are themselves. I can't bear Josie or Gertie for names now, but before I knew the Pie Girls, I thought them real pretty. That's a lovely idea, Diana, said Anne enthusiastically. Living so that you beautify your name, even if it wasn't beautiful to begin with. Making it stand in people's thoughts for something so lovely and pleasant that they never think of it by itself. Thank you, Diana. Chapter 22. Odds and Ends So, you had tea at the stone house with Lavender Lewis, said Morella at the ta breakfast table next morning. What is she like now? It's over fifteen years since I saw her last. It was one Sunday in Grafton Church. I suppose she has changed a great deal. Davy Keith, when you want something you can't reach, ask to have it passed and don't spread yourself over the table in that fashion. Did you ever see Paul Irving doing that when he was here to meals? But Paul's arms are longer than mine, grumbled Davy. They've had eleven years to grow, and mine have only had seven. Sides, I did ask, but you and Anne was so busy talking you didn't pay any attention. Sides, Paul's never been here to any meal except tea, and it's easier to be polite at tea than at breakfast. You ain't half as hungry. It's an awful long while between supper and breakfast. Now, Anne, that spoonful ain't any bigger than it was last year, and I'm ever so much bigger. Of course, I don't know what Miss Lavender used to look like, but I don't fancy somehow that she has changed a great deal, said Anne after she had helped Davy to maple syrup, giving him two spoonfuls to pacify him. Her hair is snow white, but her face is fresh and almost girlish, and she has the sweetest brown eyes, such a pretty shade of wood brown with little golden glints in them, and her voice makes you think of white satin and tinkling water and fairy bells all mixed up together. And y'all are listening, you're going to get what I'm going to give you. She was reckoned a great beauty when she was a girl, said Marilla. I never knew her very well, but I liked her as far as I did know her. Some folks thought her peculiar even then. Davy, if ever I catch you at such a trick again, you'll be made to wait for your meals till everyone else is done, like the French. Most conversations between Anne and Marilla in the presence of the twins were punctuated by these rebukes Davy word. In this instance, Davy, sad to relate, not being able to scoop up the last drops of his syrup with his spoon, had solved the difficulty by lifting his plate in both hands and applying his small pink tongue to it. Anne looked at him with such horrified eyes that the little sinner turned red and said, half shamefacedly, half defiantly, There ain't any wasted that way. People who are different from other people are always called peculiar, said Anne. And Miss Lavender is certainly different, though it's hard to say just where the difference comes in. Perhaps it is because she is one of those people who never grow old. One might as well grow old when all your generation do, said Marilla, rather reckless of her pronouns. 
If you don't, you don't fit in anywhere. Far as I can learn, Lavender Lewis has just dropped out of everything. She's lived in that out-of-the-way place until everybody has forgotten her. That stone house is one of the oldest on the island. Old Mr. Lewis built it eighty years ago when he came out from England. Davy, stop joggling Dora's elbow. Oh, I saw you. You needn't try to look innocent. What does make you behave so this morning? Maybe I got out of the wrong side of the bed, suggested Davy. Milty Bolter says if you do that, things are bound to go wrong with you all day. His grandmother told him. But which is the right side? And what are you to do when your bed's against the wall? I want to know. I've always wondered what went wrong between Stephen Irving and Lavender Lewis, continued Marilla, ignoring Davy. They were certainly engaged twenty-five years ago, and then all at once it was broken off. I don't know what the trouble was, but it must have been something terrible, for he went away to the States and never come home since. Perhaps it was nothing very dreadful after all. I think the little things in life often make more trouble than the big things, said Anne, with one of those flashes of insight which experience could not have bettered. Marilla, please don't say anything about my being at Miss Lavender's to Mrs. Lynde. She'd be sure to ask a hundred questions, and somehow I wouldn't like it. Nor Miss Lavender either, if she knew, I feel sure. I dare say Rachel would be curious, admitted Mar Marilla, though she hasn't as much time as she used to have for looking after other people's affairs. She's tied home now on account of Thomas, and she's feeling pretty downhearted, for I think she's beginning to lose hope of his ever getting better. Rachel will be left pretty lonely if anything happens to him, with all her children settled out west, except Eliza in town, and she doesn't like her husband. Marilla's pronouns slandered Eliza, who was very fond of her husband. Rachel says if he'd only brace up and exert his willpower, he'd get better. But what is the use of asking a jellyfish to sit up straight? continued Marilla. Thomas Lynde never had any willpower to exert. His mother ruled him till he married, and then Rachel carried it on. It's a wonder he dared to get sick without asking her permission. But there, I shouldn't talk so. Rachel has been a good wife to him. He'd never have amounted to anything without her, that's certain. He was born to be ruled, and it's well he fell into the hands of a clever, capable manager like Rachel. He didn't mind her way. It saved him the bother of ever making up his own mind about anything. Davy, do stop squirming like an eel. I've nothing to do, protested Davy. I can't eat any more, and it's no fun watching you and Anne eat. Well, you and Dora go out and give the hens their wheat, said Marilla, and don't you try to pull any more feathers out of the white rooster's tail, either. I wanted some feathers for an Injun headdress, said Davy sulkily. Milty Bolter has a dandy one made out of the feathers his mother gave him when she killed their old white gobbler. You might let me have some. That rooster's got ever so many more than he wants. You may have the old feather duster in the garret, said Anne, and I'll dye them green and red and yellow for you. You do spoil that boy dreadfully, said Marilla, when Davy, with a radiant face, had followed Prim Dora out. Marilla's education had made great strides in the past six years, but she had not yet been able to rid herself of the idea that it was very bad for a child to have too many of its wishes indulged. All the boys of his class have Indian headdresses, and Davy wants one too, said Anne. I know how it feels. I'll never forget how I used to long for puffed sleeves when all the other girls had them. And Davy isn't being spoiled. He is improving every day. Think what a difference there is in him since he came here a year ago. He certainly doesn't get into as much mischief since he began to go to school, acknowledged Marilla. I suppose he works off the tendency with the other boys. But it's a wonder to me we haven't heard from Richard Keith before this. 
Never a word since last May. I'll be afraid to hear from him, sighed Anne, beginning to clear away the dishes. If a letter should come, I'm, I'd dread opening it, for fear it would tell us to send the twins to him. A month later, a letter did come, but it was not from Richard Keith. A friend of his wrote to say that Richard Keith had died of consumption a fortnight previously. The writer of the letter was the executor of his will, and by that will, the sum of $2,000 was left to Miss Marilla Cuthbert in trust for David and Dora Keith until they came of age or married. In the meantime, the interest was to be used for their maintenance. It seems dreadful to be glad of anything in connection with a death, said Anne soberly. I'm sorry for poor Mr. Keith, but I am glad that we can keep the twins. It's a very good thing about the money, said Marilla practically. I wanted to keep them, but I really didn't see how I could afford to do it, especially when they grow older. The rent of the farm doesn't do any more than keep the house, and I was bound that not a cent of your money should be spent on them. You do far too much for them as it is. Dora didn't need that new hat you bought her any more than a cat needs two tails. But now the way is made clear, and they are provided for. Davy and Dora were delighted when they heard that they were going to live at Green Gables for good. The death of an uncle whom they had never seen could not weigh a moment in the balance against that. But Dora had one misgiving. "'Was Uncle Richard buried?' she whispered to Anne. "'Yes, dear, of course. He—he he, he isn't like Mirabel Cotton's uncle, is he?' In a still more agitated whisper. "'He won't walk about houses after being buried, will he, Anne?' And on that cliffhanger that surely will not be resolved, uh, we are going to stop for the night. Uh, so thank you very much for listening to Rob Reads to you. Come back next time. We will continue on with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thank you very much, and have a good night, everyone.